You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. On this week's episode, we look ahead to this year's first Grand Slam of Curling event of the season and we look at the USA Curling and their high-performance program teams to start this cycle. Hello everyone, this week I am joined by two From the Hack favorites, including Canadian Curling Hall of Famer Pierre Charette of the Grand Slam of Curling, who joins me to preview the slam season and to discuss the season's first slam, the Boost National. Also joining me this week is Phil Drobnik, who is the Director of Coaching and the Men's National Program for USA Curling. As mentioned in the intro, my first guest this week is Pierre Charette, who is part of the team that brings us the Grand Slam of Curling. Pierre joined me to discuss this year's lineup of events and to discuss all things Grand Slam. This is a yearly tradition for us at From the Hack, and we are glad to have Pierre join us once again on the eve of the first Grand Slam of the season. Pierre, I have to start by asking you how excited you and the team at the Grand Slam of Curling about starting what should be your first full season of Slam events since the pandemic started back in March of 2020. Well, I can tell you we're all uh, we're all looking forward to it. Uh, that's for sure. We've been talking about it all summer, and obviously, with the two slams being really close together, we've been uh, actively uh, working on both the events uh, in the last, uh, you know, certainly in the last five six weeks. There almost every day. Now, are you sticking to the same lineup of events to start with this new Olympic cycle, Pierre? Will it be the same events as in previous non-pandemic years, or have there been some changes? No, we have uh, actually this year we have the, the, the same schedule as we had uh, when we had our last uh, full season. Uh, Champions Cup, the, the, the closing um, event, uh, will it, it's going to be the last year of the Champions Cup. But uh, this year we have a full uh, six-event season. Will you be replacing the Champions Cup with another event next season, or is that still a work in progress at this point? Honestly, it's too early yet. Uh, uh, Sportsnet uh, has not decided uh, exactly what they're going to do. It's more... The players, uh, you know, would like the season to end with the with the players' championship. Uh, you know, like mid-April is kind of a you know it's a long season, and because the mixed uh, worlds doubles what that was added to the schedule, we had to push back the Champions Cup into May, so which uh, extends the season uh, just a little too long for the liking of the players. Now, traditionally, Pierre, the Grand Slam of Curling likes to try some new things, especially early on in the new cycle. Will you be experimenting with anything or any new rules early this season? Uh, we're going to do the no-tick uh, um, that uh, that the World Curling Federation has adopted as a trial for, for this year. Um, we've been using it, uh, you know, uh, off and on the last uh, couple of years. Um, sometimes we just did the eight and and the extra ends. And sometimes we did the, the you know, the, the whole game. So we're going to do the whole game, uh, uh, especially for the first two events. But that's for now, that's the only uh, rule uh, uh, rule that we'll be trying out for now. And there's a lot of new teams and, uh, well, you know, we're getting back into it. So uh, we think that's just, just operating with this new rule for uh, is the right thing to do at this point. 
Now, there will be several new lineups participating in the first slam of the season, Pierre. And from your experience, does the first event force new lineups to be very focused because they need to earn enough points to qualify for the other slams of the season, whereas teams that have made little to no lineup changes enter the slam with most of their points from last season safely in the bank and can perhaps work their way into the slam season with a little less uh, pressure, if we can put it that way, on their shoulders? Of course, it's... Um... You know, of course, it's a lot of pressure for the teams that are maybe, uh, you know, ranked 12 to 16. Uh, like you said, the top top 10 or 12 teams are pretty sure uh, to get into um, most of the slams. Mind you, uh, Frank, the, uh, you know, the teams lose their pass points as the season progresses. They already lost uh, 25% when you start the season. And every month they lose another 12.5%. So by March, um, last year's points are all gone. So you do have to perform, uh, you know, uh, this season. And I noticed some of the teams have, have a light schedule this year. Uh, not, uh, they're not missing any slams, which is, which is great for us. But they're playing only the, slam, the slams, basically. Like some, some teams are mostly, you know, like a, a, um, uh, a short schedule, like I said. So they'll have to perform. Otherwise, they could go down the standings pretty quick. Now, we'll discuss uh, the first event of the season in a few moments, Pierre. But I know that the Grand Slam of Curling takes great pride in the international nature of their fields. Whereas some people in Canada complain because, in their estimation, the international contingent is too large at slam events. You and I discussed this in an interview about four or five years ago. But I thought it might be good for you to once again share why you feel it's so important to have a large international contingent at slam events. In my book, it's very simple. It's that we just Grand Slammer Curling prides himself on having the best, uh, the best teams uh, at our events. I mean, uh, regardless where where they're coming from, you know, we always have a a really good Canadian content. Uh, you know, out of the sixteen teams, we usually have between uh, you know six and ten, depending uh, what year we had and stuff. But we never had less than six, and I think uh, I think the, even the Canadian teams you know, the top Canadian teams want to play against the best teams in the world. I mean, that's, that's why, you know, when you're on a really, really good competitive team, that's what you want to do. You know, you, you, club curling is, is passed for these people. They want, they want to play against the best because if they do need to go to an international event, whether it's the Worlds, whether it's the Olympics, uh, you know, if you need the experience of playing those teams because they got different styles, different, uh, different way to approach the game. And, you know, they're, the, the, those those international teams, you know, like a lot of them, that, you know, especially the Asian teams, that's all they do. So believe me, they're they're getting really really good, and uh, the advantage that the Canadian teams used to have on on the, the teams from uh, you know the most most international teams is gone. Those days are gone, and and at Sportsnet, uh, the Grand Slam of curling is. Yeah, we know we have the best events, uh, bar none. I mean. Uh, you know, every game is a competitive game. Uh, you know, any team can beat any team on any, any given weekend. I wouldn't be surprised if we had, like, totally different qualifiers in the two slams and, and they're only, like, you know, 10 days apart. So uh, we'll see. New teams and everything, you know, like we saw at the points bet uh, uh, this week where, uh, you know, you saw Reed Carruthers and Matt Dunstone in the final. I think it shows that some of the new teams are maybe not, not quite there yet. Uh, maybe 
maybe Crowder, Steam, and and Dunstone they they gelled right away. So and they're certainly pumped to 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 play the first event, and we're we're pumped to see all those new teams play. So you're coming back to my neck of the woods in Northern Ontario for the first slam of this new season, the end of this new cycle, Pierre. Tell me about coming back to North Bay, where the crowds were phenomenal when the Grand Slam of Curling was here just a few seasons ago. It goes back, so I believe the year before we went, they had the uh, the Women's Worlds, if I'm not mistaken, and and we. All the teams, uh, you know, like the, the Canadian teams that played in, the, in that Worlds and some of the international teams that were here, they were they were amazed about the atmosphere and how welcome they were. So that's that's how we we got to go to North Bay, you know, very, very soon after the Women's Worlds, and and uh, we're we're very excited to go back. We know it's going to be well attended, and we know it's going to be well supported by the local people and uh, and all the teams. I can tell you are really really looking forward to go back to North Bay. Now, with all the team changes at the end of an Olympic cycle, Pierre, how did the Grand Slam of Curling go about identifying which teams to invite to the first slam of the season? Well, uh, regardless of uh, regardless of uh, the changes that were done, is that uh, every team had to go through the uh, the process of uh, being awarded um, beginning points, and it was based like if you had three of your four players coming back, you could retain all your points. If you had only two of the four players coming back, then those two players would take half the points of their team and the other two would probably take half of the points that they had before. Or if they came from different teams, they would get a quarter each. And that's how you get to uh, the starting point. So it's a, it's a fair process. Uh, nobody loses in there. It's, it's just that if you were starting with a brand new team with somebody that, let's say, was a junior last year, well, you might, you might start a little lower but most of the most of the, the uh, you know the top players from last year are still well in the top you know ten or twelve. Mind you, you had uh, Team McEwen and Team Epping were uh, you know they were just on the borderline and and uh, you know and Team Oregon the same thing and and they had to fight for the last few spots and uh, so they didn't all get in for the for the first two slams. Now, as most people will know, you serve as the coach of Team Tiranzoni from uh, Switzerland, uh, Pierre. There is a fairly significant influx of newer Swiss teams who will compete in North Bay at the first slam of the season. Can you perhaps tell us a little bit about Team Kaiser on the women's side, as well as Team Hosley and Team Bruner on the men's side, as most listeners will be unfamiliar with them? Well, uh, Team Team Kaiser on the women's side is, uh, you know, uh, uh, Team Tiranzoni has been playing that team uh, competitively for the last three, four years, you know, ever since they came out of juniors and stuff. And we knew it was just a matter of time before they would crack the, the you know, the top 16 and get into the slam. And they're actually in both, both slams. They just made it. They were like 16. So, but they, they got in, they're a really, really good team. They, they played last weekend in, uh, in Basel and won the event. Uh, they actually beat Tim Terenzoni in a very close game in the semifinals. So, uh, I, I, I think that there's a, there's a, a rivalry there. That's going to be, uh, that's going to be very uh, vivid for the next uh, four years uh, in Switzerland between those two teams on the women's side. On the men's side, Team Osley is probably something like the equivalent of Team Kaiser in a sense that it's a very young team that started to show a lot of um, a lot of promise last year. Won a, a few, uh, won a, like something like four or five smaller tournaments, but you know showed that they have a lot a lot of poise, a lot of talent, and they work really hard. Uh, 
I don't, I'm not sure if Osley himself, the skip will be at the slam because he had a really, really bad, really bad injury. And he had to, he had to go to surgery about three weeks ago, but they actually came to Canada and played a few events and they played just three and they actually did not do bad at all. So I'm not sure if they're going to come just at three in the, in the slam or if they're bringing a, a, um, if they're bringing a spare or if, uh, if Marco Osley himself will be um, back, for, you know, back in, in, in form enough to, to play. But um, they're, a, they're a really up-and-coming team. As far as Bruner, Bruner is like uh, three of the players that were on, uh, on Schwaller's team last year. So those three formed a new team. And because they had three out of four, they retain all the points of the team, so, which means it got them in as the slams. But they're off to a very difficult uh, start. They played four events already, and they managed to win something like a total of six or seven games. So not gathering too many points. So they need a really good uh, showing in the first slam. Otherwise, they're definitely going to be slipping off uh, out of the top 16. And then, of course, you got Schwaller now who teamed up with uh, Benoit Schwartz. And and that's going to be, to me, that's going to be the team to beat in Switzerland for, for the next few years. And they actually won two events already, and that, and they're ready for the slams. And that's a really, really good team. I think uh, I think people are going to be uh, it's going to be fun to watch uh, Benoit Schwartz and, and Schwaller playing on the same team. So, Pierre, every year when you and I get together before the first time of the season to discuss the upcoming slam season, we seem to talk about good young teams from European and Asian countries headed to their first slams, yet we rarely talk about good young Canadian teams headed to slams. In fact, at the end of the recent Olympic, uh, pardon me, at the end of the most recent two or three Olympic cycles, it seems that for the most part, Canadian teams end up consisting of a lot of old faces in new places as opposed to fresh young teams coming out of the system. Should that be a concern for Canadian fans, Pierre, that we seem to be developing good individual players who end up joining teams with more experienced players while young teams from Europe and Asia don't seem to look out of place when they're playing our top teams? Like, it's one thing to, it's one thing to say that the reason why we have no young Canadian teams uh, playing in the slams or competing at the slams or, or, or fairly few top Canadian young teams playing in the slams is because, well, you know, we're so deep and, uh, you know, uh, the European and Asian teams have younger teams because they don't have as much depth. Yet these young teams from uh, Europe and Asia are coming to Canada for the slams and are performing very, very well against our best teams, including our best veteran players. So if the young players from Europe and Asia are developing at a rate which allows them to be competitive with our older skips and our older teams throughout a slam season as well as at the world championships, then why is it difficult for young Canadian teams to do the same thing? I think it's because it's because of the top teams, you know, like the, when you have uh, four or five really, you know, elite skips like Botcher and, and, uh, you know, and Gushu and Dunstone and Carruthers and, uh, you know, the Mike McEwens of the world and stuff like, and Kevin Cooey. Um, it's tough for a young team to come in as a foursome and crack, crack those, uh, you know, to beat those teams in Canada. So I think it's a little normal that they get picked up by, by the top teams, like like Tardy got picked up by Cooey, and you got the Oregon brothers are going to, are, uh, you know, they, they, they have a, a really good team and they're, they're, in this, they're in one of the two slams. And uh, I think there they are some really, really good young teams. And I think the CCA is doing the right thing by having uh, you know, U18 tournaments and U21 tournaments. And I think that's how you build uh, 
those teams to be good in competitions. They need to play competitions so that they they grasp how, how good they need they need to improve to be able to to uh, to reach the next level. Uh, you know, you know when guys like like uh, Kevin Cooey or Brad Gushu or some of the older skips, you know, some of the veterans, um, you know, leave the game, then I think you're going to see some of those young teams, uh, you know, rise. And, and uh, you know, look at Zacharias' team. They, they were they were well underway. They decided to go with Jen to get the experience, to get with Jennifer Jones. But, I mean, that's a really, really good young team. That's the best young women's team that came out as four juniors in a long, long time and stuck together. So uh, I think that uh, – I think – I think Canada's not not doing as bad as people think. I think we're doing uh, we're doing fine. It's just that the other teams are, you know, they they used to be behind the Canadian teams and now they're I would say they're at the same level and it makes for great competition. Now, each year when we do our interview prior to the first time of the season, you always identify a couple of teams for us that may not be in the first slam, but that you anticipate might surprise people and qualify for slams later in the season. Is there a team or two on both the men's and women's sides, uh, Pierre, that fit that description this season? A team like uh, Corey Dropkin, the American team, they, they're, they're in uh, one slam and they're not in the other, so that's because they're right on the border. They're, they're a really good young team, and, uh, you know, probably taking over from Team Schuster and, you know, in the U.S. Uh, I think uh, once uh, Oregon, Team Oregon, once they, you know, they if they can qualify and in, 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 in the slam that they're going to play, I think I think they'll, it would get them into the, the next couple for the rest of the year. You know, we, uh, like I said, a, a team like Bruner is really going to have to play well to stay in there. But, but I think, uh, I, I really think that Dropkin and, and, uh, and Oregon and, you know, and John Epping and, and McEwen, who are really close to that spot. I don't think Bruner is going to survive that that that, uh, that, uh, that that push from those teams. On a women's side, uh, let me see here. On a women's side, on a women's side, we have uh, Kelsey Rock is just outside. Kelsey's a Kelsey's a mystery to me. You know, I I, I see her play and her and her, her teammates uh, sometimes, and you say, "Geez, that's." They're just so close. They're just so close. But I've been saying that for like four years, you know, that they just don't seem to be able to, you know, to, to just to, uh, to make the last step, you know, to, to, to fight with the, with the, with the teams uh, every weekend. But there is one team that really impressed me because uh, uh, I was coaching team Terenzoni for two events in Canada back in August and early September and it's a team from from British Columbia, skipped by Clancy Grandy. They just missed out. They're not playing the first two slams, but they will play in Tier 2 in the, uh, the Grand Prairie event, uh, the Tour Challenge. They, they, they actually, we played them three times since the start of the year, and they beat us twice. So uh, really, really well, uh, really, really good team. Uh, Clancy used to play with uh, Flaxy in Ontario, and... Uh, Kayla McMillan or Vice um, uh, was undefeated at the BC Provincial last year, but then lost the final uh, to go to the Scotties. And I was really impressed with that team. I think that team is going to be, uh, once they crack the top 16 and get in the slams, I think they'll be there to stay also. They're, they're playing lots. They're, uh, uh, they're, they're practicing like crazy, although uh, three of them are still in school and stuff, but they, they love the game and I like their enthusiasm and I, I think they're. I think they're going to make it uh, into the slam. Uh, you know, for uh, maybe the the next two after the the first ones. 
And finally, Pierre, it seems like every year when we do this particular interview at the start of the slam season, I tend to end the interview with the same question each year, and that is whether or not you see a time when uh, the Grand Slam of Curling might add mixed doubles to their schedule. To be honest, I was surprised when it was announced, uh, you know, maybe uh, five, six weeks ago that uh, there was uh, uh, was going to be something on CBC with... Uh, with some mixed doubles events and there's actually one in Ottawa, I believe this coming weekend. Um, since then, I haven't heard too much about it, but uh, uh, I, you know, I, I asked the people at Sportsnet if they were, if they, you know, I just, you know, just ask out, you know, did we, did you guys know about this, that this was coming and, and uh, nobody knew about it. So it's, it was, it was brand new, uh, brand, uh, it was news for, uh, for, uh, for the Grand Slam of curling. So, I guess we kind of have to wait to see how this, uh, you know, this uh, new series is going to go. Hopefully, it's going to go well. But it, right now, it looks like it's going to be on, C- on CBC. My next guest this week is Phil Drobnik of USA Curling, who joined me to discuss the teams in the American High Performance Program. We also discussed Nina Roth and Jamie Sinclair, both of whom are no longer competing for USA Curling. And we discussed the approach of the different high performance American teams in this, the first year of a new cycle. Coach Phil, according to the USA Curling website, uh, you're entering this season with two men's and two women's teams in the high-performance program. In the last cycle, there were three men's teams and three women's teams in the program. Is a change a result of funding restrictions, or have you simply made changes in the way monies are allocated throughout your program? Yeah, just a change in our structure. Um, you know, we we see the value in, in pipeline development and being able to um, ensure that our, our young athletes um, really – uh, have have an opportunity to train and 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 prepare themselves just as our as our uh, senior athletes. So, um, you know, we made the decision to to go to two men's teams and two women's teams, and then uh, continue with our U twenty five program, which supports one men's team and one's women's team. And then, in addition to that, we uh, added a new developmental pool of athletes um, where we're funding individual athletes. Uh, eight eight uh, uh, women and, and four men on that, and then uh, and, and of course our two uh, our world um, world junior teams that will be going to represent us in uh, in February, and then uh, our six uh, our seven I think seven mixed doubles teams. I want to speak with you about each of these high-performance teams, starting with the 2018 Olympic champions, Team Schuster, which uh, is a team that remains the same with no lineup changes over last cycle. I was wondering if any thought had been put into possibly breaking up this team so that the members of Team Schuster could be paired with younger curlers to help expedite the development of these younger curlers, something similar to what Kevin Cooey is doing with uh, Tyler Tardy and uh, Jennifer Jones is doing by joining forces with Team Zacharias. You know, uh, not really. We had uh, felt pretty confident with where John was at. You know, they added, obviously, Colin Hoffman was with them at the Olympics, but he wasn't on their team for the quad um, last season. So they did add uh, Colin Hoffman uh, to the team, who will be a full part of the lineup. Uh, you know, they're going to have a full five-person lineup. So as as we know, they are veterans and have been around a while, so allowing themselves that opportunity to take a weekend off here and there, um, obviously, Colin was a great ad. He's one of he's a fantastic sweeper. Co- came from Team Ruinin, so um, you know he he's a great fit with those guys. Um, and and you know it was just the change that they needed to uh, to continue to to help them to to fuel their drive. 
Um, you know, they, they were close to uh, the bronze medal, obviously losing, losing the bronze medal game to, to Gushu, but they really, uh, you know, that gave them the spark that they needed to want to continue together and push through four more years together. And, um, and then on the flip side with Corey Dropkin, um, you know, uh, having a, a good run at the world championships, having lost the bronze medal game as well. Um, you know, he needed to, to make a, a change because Joe, um, stepped away, retired from the game, and uh, went with the youth of of Andrew Sapera and putting him in there. Who who Andrew was playing third for Rich and um, Andrew skipped uh, as a, at a junior level was just a it was an easy fit. It was a, a no brainer really. And um, Andrew has played with Mark and and Tom and and um, and Corey in the past and juniors. So uh, it was uh, yeah it was a it was a it was a pretty uh, uneventful off season for us on the on the men's side for sure. With regards to Corey Dropkin and Andrew Sapera, coach, uh, some people might argue that it would have also made sense to keep both of them on separate teams so that they could push each other over the coming years and help you build two elite young teams instead of one in your program. Did you ever consider keeping Corey and Andrew as the skips of their own teams for this cycle? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, that's what our U25 program is for, to, to help also to push that. And we feel like we've got a uh, a great um, a great team with uh, uh, Luke Violet and Danny Casper and and Chase Sinet and, and Ben Richardson and um, I have no doubt by the end of this squad that they'll be pushing hard on Corey and on John both to uh, to make them better. They played last weekend. They lost to Corey in the final of the U.S. Open. They went up to Ontario. They won the event that they that they played in Ontario. Now again, they're not high level um, tier one events, but. There are events that they should go out and win, and they're they, they're going out and win. And you know they lost to Corey in a in a extra end here at the U.S. Open um, last weekend. So uh, I think we're in a good spot with that. It was a, a you know we, we had Danny aged out of juniors and um, really jumping in and taking taking control of that um, taking the skip reins on that on that U25 team. And the other bonus with that U25 team and and having Andrew go with Corey and then having the U25 team stick together was um, that they can really focus that U25 team can really focus on the world university games and our world university games playdowns are coming up here in the middle of October. And, you know, that's a big goal of theirs to be able to, to get into that and, and compete in that world university games. Now, Coach, before we start discussing the women's teams in the high-performance program, I want to start off by tipping my cap to Nina Roth, who has stepped away from curling, at least for now. Can you speak about the impact that Nina had on the high-performance program and how her stepping away from the sport will impact the program? Yeah, she's uh, she's been a great asset to, to USA Curling and has been a great player. Uh, I remember going to the, to the World Junior Championships uh, um, back in 2008 uh, in uh, to Sweden with her when she was a young skip and um, you know she's come a long ways and she's really dedicated herself to the game and um, you know family is an important piece for her and to be able to uh, spend time with her with her kid and and you know look at growing a family and you know I think it's uh, it, it was something that she needed to do and she felt like was appropriate timing and um, you know we are ever indebted to you know, just the commitment that she's given to USA Curling. And, you know, we hope at some point she either comes back and plays or, you know, maybe she she uh, decides she wants to uh, help and either coach a young team or player coach for a young team. You know, she, she's always would uh, would have a welcome spot, clearly, uh, as a as a as a veteran and, and uh, you know, an Olympian and uh uh, you know, and uh, being a national, multiple, multiple national champion. So um, big shoes to fill. 
definitely um, once she left and, you know, was kind of, uh, you know, our number one priority was to, to get Tab's team um, a player that they, they could uh, rely on that could jump in and, and play third and, um, you know, someone that could fit in with the team, as you know, that's a, that's an important part of the game is to find somebody who can not only fit in with the team, but travel with the team and, and fit the role that they needed uh, when it came to throwing third, third stones. Coach, Nina Roth is just one of several relatively young elite curlers that stepped away from the sport at the end of the last cycle, at least temporarily. Uh, among uh, Canadian curlers that have also stepped away are Laura Walker, Joanne Courtney, and Brad Jacobs, not to mention, of course, the reigning Olympic champion, Eve Muirhead from Scotland. Each of these players left the sport for their own reasons, but I'm left to wonder if there would be this type of exodus by players still in their primes if curlers were making more money competing at the elite level. I mean, the financial windfall of competing at the elite level simply does not seem big enough to justify the grind and the time away from family and from the full-time jobs for several of these players. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough go out there. And I agree. It's a, you know, we need to grow our sport to the point where we can have full-time athletes and that they can get compensated appropriately and, you know, be out there competing, you know, on the tour for, for more money. I mean, purses have not gone up in sizes, um, you know, in 20 years, really. I mean, if you look at uh, it's 15, 20 years ago, teams were making the same amount of money. And, you know, there's relatively small pool of money that, you know, um, that, that these athletes are chasing after. And, you know, hopefully, I'm hopeful that it, you know, because of the Olympics and because, you know, our game does keep growing that we can we can um, find a way in the U.S. to be able to continue to bring in some sponsors and to bring in some support to help these athletes and allow them to just focus on curling and not have to be like Nina, a nurse or like, uh, you know, Tab, a, um, um, a Tara, a dentist and, and Tab, a pharmacist. So, I, I, yeah, 100 percent. I think that's probably the driver behind a lot of this. And I hope we can fix that sometime soon. As you mentioned earlier, Coach, uh, Corey Christensen, uh, who skipped the second-ranked team in the U.S. at the end of the last cycle, has been added to Team Peterson at third. Now, Corey has played the third at the elite level before and will certainly fill that spot admirably. However, I'm wondering if there was any concern that adding Corey to Team Peterson and removing her from the second-ranked team in the country might be leaving your women's program a little top-heavy with a growing gap between Team Peterson and the other top teams in the country. You know, it was, uh, it's a combination of, of making sure that, uh, you know, we have a team that at the, at the top that can, can compete and can go out and, you know, tabs in the uh, prime of her career and, and ready to go out and, and try to continue to win world medals and compete at Olympics and, um, you know, making sure she has all the artillery that she can, you know, to be able to do that. So, you know, bringing Corey Christensen into the mix was, uh, was it was a great ad for that team she's got a lot of experience and then you know we're pretty confident and uh, you know and Delaney Strauss is U25 team she came off a bronze medal at the world championship and being able to support her and on that U25 level and really have her continue to grow as a player as a skip as a team we kept that team fully together um after after juniors which is you know something that doesn't always happen or hasn't always happened and um you know we're excited to see where that goes um, with that team in particular, they played Team Anderson and Team Peterson last weekend and beat them both. Uh, granted, a one-off game and in an event, but it just shows the potential of Team Strauss and um, and and you know where they're going. Obviously, their focus this year is going to be the uh, World Universities, and then uh, you know to really um, allow Team Anderson. Sarah Anderson has been someone that we've valued in the program. She's been a great player for for. Um, 
for a long time. Her and her sister, her and Taylor, um, really have have grown together. They've been they play together since they were young kids, and um, really allowing Sarah that opportunity. She's really been a skip of her mixed doubles team. Um, you know, for those of you that that you know mixed doubles, a lot of times the the there's some teams in particular where the female just calls the game and the men the male sweeps everything. We're seeing that more and more. Um, uh, on a regular basis in mixed doubles. And Sarah's really done that and been the leader on her mixed doubles team. And this allows her to step into that leadership role and give her an opportunity to skip and, um, you know, really work with her sister and bring in a couple of young athletes that, that we thought had a lot of uh, opportunity. And um, I think that this team is going to be an exciting team to watch. They, they had a great first weekend out when, uh, and then they also, uh, excuse me, they also have Eileen, Eileen Giving, who uh, is the veteran on the team that's really uh, stepping up to help kind of um, train them and, and teach them the ins and outs for, for a new team. So, you know, their first week on the tour, they were able to go up to, to um, Winnipeg and play in an event and lose the final to uh, Caitlin Laws and, um, you know, played Caitlin twice and lost twice, but, but played solid games against them. So, um, you know, I'm excited for Sarah to have this opportunity, uh, excited for Taylor to be able to have the opportunity to move up to play, to play third and to have Eileen help to, to train them. And, you know, I think we have a lot of opportunity with growth there and two solid young skips. I mean, both in their twenties that we can continue to, uh, to grow and build on. And coach, I think it's also important to highlight just how impressive Tad Peterson was towards the end of that last cycle, taking over skipping duties from Nina Roth when Nina went away to have her first child and earning the right to stay at the skip position through her results and the quality of her play. Can you talk about the evolution of Tab's game over the past couple of seasons from a very talented support player to one of the leaders of your program and one of the best skips in the world? Yeah, Tab's, Tab's, Tab's a hard worker. She has... Um, she has just got ice in her veins. She, you know, she's working always to make herself better. She, she took the opportunity of, of having, being able to step up and, and, and throw last stones and, and lead a game um, and, and really just went with it. And, you know, she is uh, the type of player that, that, um, you know, people want to play for and, you know, because she's, she's, she's got what it takes to, to make the shot under pressure, um, and I, I've been really impressed with Tab, you know, from mixed doubles, you know, when she was playing with, with Joe Polo and, you know, she's taken in, she's had the opportunity to learn from some of our absolute best athletes at USA curling that we've had, um, you know, Tab went to, went to a world championship with, with Allison Pottinger and was able to, to play with Allison and Natalie Nicholson. And, you know, she, she took those opportunities. She learned from those, from those players uh, when she was a young athlete and has just kind of taken it all in and, and put it all together. So I'm, I'm excited for Tab. Tab is very uh, determined. She, you know, she's had two Olympic, uh, two Olympic appearances and has failed to get on the medal stand. And uh, I can guarantee um, she is going to be one of the hardest working curlers in the world this next four years to, to find a way to get, get herself on that medal stand at the, at the Olympics in uh, 2026. At the end of the 2018 Olympic cycle, Coach Phil, Jamie Sinclair led her team to a fourth-place finish at the World Championships, an event where her and her team deserved a better fate, and a few weeks later, she led her team to a Players' Championship title. It looked like Jamie was on an upward trajectory, and now four years later, she is no longer even in the mix as part of the high-performance program and is playing part-time this season on a team out of Manitoba. From your perspective, was this simply a case of Jamie looking to spend more time close to home in Canada, or was it simply your program moving in a different direction? 
you know, I have the uh, utmost respect for Jamie and um, what she's given the the U.S. curling program. She is a a hardworking athlete who has had tons of successes and is and is a fantastic player. Um, you know, Jamie is uh, is Canadian. She's she's grown up uh, in, in Ontario and, and Ontario is a big part of her life. That's where her family lives. And, you know, and really wanted to um, and really wanted to be able to live in Canada and focus in Canada. And I think that, you know, we have to, as, as, as people, like we do have to take the, the, the person aspect out of this uh, into take this into play, sorry, um, into this. And, you know, she wants to be by her family. She wants to compete in Canada. And, and I think that, that that's a great opportunity for her. And, you know, certainly she's, she'll be missed and um you know anyone would miss a, a player of her talent and you know I, I had a number of conversations with her about different things and um you know I appreciate the fact that you know she puts family first she puts you know she wants to she wants to um you know live within her community and you know she's got a business that she works there as well so um she, again she'll she'll be missed and you know I I love the opportunities that I had to work with Jamie and you know, I wish her nothing but the but success. Um, you know, when she's out on the ice, and and that she can you know get continue to to become as as great of a curler as she has. And finally, Coach Phil, there seems to be a wide array of ways for teams and national programs to approach the first year of a new cycle. I know that a couple of your teams have already played quite a bit early this season, but I'm wondering if the plan is to keep them close to home and work their way into the cycle, or if they will be traveling extensively early in the season to accumulate points and bond as units while on the road. You know, we're, we're kind of fortunate in, the, in our program that we've got the, you know, a wide variety of, of um levels of player players, right? Like we've got Corey Dropkins team who's young and hungry and they want to get themselves into the slams and become a, you know, a, a constant slam team. So they, they started the season out by going to Switzerland and Scotland and, you know, they've played quite a bit. They got themselves into the first slam um, in tier two of the second slam. And, you know, they're fighting, they're, they're, they're battling to try to, to, to be a slam team. And then you've got a, an approach like uh, team Peterson and, and team Schuster team Peterson clearly values the slams would love to be a slam team, but they were, they were wore out and they said they were very clear that they wanted to start the season uh, mid to mid to um, mid um, September. And, um, you know, they did. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll play in the first couple slams and just a little bit different approach than team Dropkin and, and team Schuster, you know, of course they continue down the path of their focus throughout a season is to be able to be prepared to win the national championship and the world championships. And um, they set up a schedule for that. And, you know, they play different events. They play, you know, this weekend they're out in Vernon. It's an event they haven't played in a while. So they wanted to go back there and they're very selective and they like to go to places that, you know, as a team, they can go and enjoy. And, um, you know, they're going to Kirazawa. They, they love that event. So um, it's really a different approach with every one of our teams. And, um, you know, I will say uh, Team Schuster has a has a great approach to, to, to a veteran team as to, you know, how they want to play a season and really get the most out of it, not just the curling aspect of it, but also, you know, enjoying life and being together as a team as well. And that does it for this week's episode of the From the Hack podcast. A big thank you to Pierre Charette and Phil Drobnik for joining me this week. And watch for next week's episode when we will be recapping the National Grand Slam and look ahead to upcoming events. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network, the Two Girls in the Game podcast, and the Curling Legends podcast. 
I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.